Amen. Thank you, Jim. Beautiful song, beautiful truth. We are concluding a series entitled The Acts 1-8 Church, Becoming an Acts 1-8 Church today. This is the very last sermon that I'll be preaching on this and uh, for this year. So let's talk about that for a second. Let me remind you where we've been. Becoming an Acts 1-8 Church means fulfilling God's dream for His church today by learning from the church at its very beginning. Acts 1-8, that verse, lays out God's dream for the church at the beginning, and I believe it's still God's dream for His church today. Just to remind you what that verse says, it says, Jesus says, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit, you'll have to mark this down because it's not going to be up there, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's God's dream for His church. And so far, this is where we've been as we've talked about the Acts 1-8 church. And let me remind you as we go through these, you cannot be an Acts 1-8 church corporately unless you're an Acts 1-8 Christian individually. So each of these should apply to us as individuals. An Acts 1-8 church puts themselves in a position to meet God. An Acts 1-8 church must patiently embrace the pace of God. An Acts 1-8 church must be filled with the power of God. An Acts 1-8 church must proclaim the truth about God. An Acts 1-8 church must be productive for God. An Acts 1-8 church is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. An Acts 1-8 church is motivated by receiving praise from God. To hear that, well done, good and faithful servant. An Acts 1-8 church must penetrate the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. And finally, an Acts 1-8 church is persecuted for their faith in Christ. Is persecuted for their faith in Christ. An Acts 1-8 church will be persecuted. An Acts 1-8 Christian will be persecuted. Our passage today is Acts chapter 8 verse 1 through 4. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Just to give a little context, Stephen has just been executed by the religious leaders of that day for proclaiming the message of salvation. And this is the aftermath of that execution. Now Saul was consenting to his death at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Let's pray. Father, help me to be clear in the presentation of your word. Help us to hear what you want us to hear today. Help us to take it and let nothing keep it from getting getting down into our heart, Lord, and rooted and planted and deeply pressed down so it'll bear fruit in our lives. 
Help us to see the reality of this in all of our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, what is persecution? What is persecution? It literally means the hunt to bring down someone, bring down someone like a wild animal for the purpose of trying to suppress or punish their convictions. It also literally refers to those who are seeking to punish God's messengers with a vengeance, like a hunter trying to conquer or obliterate someone as their catch. It's used in ancient and biblical Greek for the persecution or hostility shown by confused and spiritual leaders like Saul in this passage. Or it can apply to the Roman emperor Decius or others. It was used in ancient writings who lived about A.D. 250. He killed thousands of Christians who refused to offer sacrifices in his name. Persecution. It's all throughout Scripture. It even happens today. Today is the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. Did you know that? It's the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. On a yearly basis, about 100,000 people die in the world for the Christian faith. 100,000. Because they believe in Jesus Christ. This is a day we remember them as we preach the word, as we hear the word, and as we pray. Because I would propose to you that an Acts 1-8 church will be persecuted. And Acts 1-8 Christians will be persecuted. Let me ask you this. Do you expect to be a persecuted church? Do you plan on being a persecuted Christian? Let me share with you two passages of Scripture that speak to this. This is first Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verse 10, when he says this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecution. We don't, I don't know how often we think about persecution in the life of the church. Here's another passage from Peter, 1 Peter 4, 12-14. Peter said these words, and they could be said to us today, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is what it means to be a Christian, is to potentially deal in your life with some level of persecution. So can we learn from their persecution? I believe we can. And we'll, work, we'll be walking straight through the text here. First, there's the satisfaction of the sentence. The satisfaction of the sentence, starting in verse 1. And, Paul, and Saul, now many of you know this is the Saul, who would become Paul. 
He would be converted on the road to Damascus. But he's not Paul yet. And Saul was consenting to his death. The word consenting here means to feel gratified or satisfied with the persecution. Why would someone feel good about doing something like this? Why would they feel good about that? Well, first, he thought that good had prevailed. Believing himself to be on the right side of the matter, Saul probably thought he was doing, quote-unquote, the Lord's work. Doing the Lord's work by stoning Stephen. Persecution can often come from well-intentioned people thinking they're doing the Lord's work as well. Secondly, and ironically, it was the end of the discomfort he felt at Stephen's message. It tells us in Acts 7 they were cut to the heart when they heard Stephen preach. But the fact is they were not convicted to change like they were in Acts 2. They were convicted to stone Stephen. And Saul was experiencing this conviction. We know this because Acts chapter 9, verse 5 tells us this, that when Jesus confronted Saul on the road to Damascus, he tells him it's hard to kick against the goad. G-O-A-D-S, the goad. Now the goad was a long stick with a sharp piece of iron stuck at the end of it that was used to urge on an animal like an ox. Sometimes they were called ox goads. And the whole thing that's going on is as the word is being preached, God is using the word and poking Saul. I don't know about you, I don't like to be poked. So we respond in a certain way when we're poked. And the truth is that we can possibly see relief in the death of an evil man, but but Stephen was no evil man, nor did he have an evil message. He was killed because he was right about them. And they did not want to hear it. They didn't want to be poked. They didn't want to be cut to the heart. But the cutting did not lead to conviction. And conviction is something we do not want to hear in our day and age. People do not want to hear preachers who preach against sin and about the realities of hell. Or against compromising for holiness. They only want to hear only the good feeling things about the Christian life for them and for us. That does not change the fact that sin has consequences. And there is a way we ought to live. But the fact is that the Word of God makes many uncomfortable. Persecution comes to devout Christians. Religious persecution comes to devout Christians. Religious and sinful people are bothered by the talk of sin and its consequences. That's when persecution comes. Because people are bothered. They don't want to hear about sin and its consequences. Persecution will come because sinful people need the satisfaction of shutting up the Word of God. Don't give them the satisfaction. There's the satisfaction of the sentence. And then there's the scattering of the saints. Take a look at the next passage in Acts chapter 8. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered, scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, up until this point in Acts, the persecution had been upon the leadership of the church. We see this with Peter and John and others. 
That was going to change. Now the attacks came directly on the entire church. And this passage shouldn't surprise us. After all, Acts 1.8 says, You shall be witnesses unto me where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And you have all three of those locations listed here. And here's a side note. The word for witness there is the word martyr. And what does a martyr? Martyr dies for their faith. It came to mean that through its use in the language today. God was, here's the deal, God was working His purposes out for His good in the midst of a seemingly bad situation. Persecution always plays into God's purposes. Persecution always plays into God's purposes. And this isn't the first time God took a bad situation and turned it for good. If you were to look at Genesis 50, you would hear the story of Joseph and his brothers and how Joseph's brothers envied him and sent him off into slavery in Egypt. And if you don't know the rest of the story, through God's power and providence, he took Joseph and made him second in command over all of Egypt with the opportunity to take his brothers and get back at them for what they had done to him. But Joseph said this to them in Genesis 50. He said, what you intended for evil... God used for good. You harassed me. You threw me in a pit. You did all these things. But God was still working out His purposes. God still does that today. These scattered saints in this passage set an example for us to follow today. This is the way we ought to be. We ought to be scattered for the Savior. Sometimes we don't want to scatter. Sometimes we just want to stay in our nice comfortable environment, but I believe God wants His church to scatter. Let me give you three examples from mission work around the world. God took three churches in Southeast Asia, and these were in hot spots around the world, and turned it into 550 churches in just four years. They were scattered. In China, and God is doing a what a work in China He's doing right now. In China, during the same period of time, God created 500 new churches with 20,000 believers. It's even more today. In Latin America, God used persecution to grow 232 churches to 3,200 churches in eight years. And then even in Western Europe, where the gospel seemed so hard to get out, there were 15 cell groups, and through the persecution... While the missionaries had gone home, God took 15 and turned it into 30. That's the way God works. So are you willing to be a scattered saint for the Savior? There's the satisfaction of the sentence. There's the scattering of the saints. And third, there's the service done to Stephen. The service done to Stephen. It simply says in the passage, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation. Over him. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Devout here means those who take hold of that which is truly good. Who are these devout men? The Bible used the word devout four times. Once for, was for Simeon in Luke 2, who met the baby Jesus. There were the devout men who witnessed Pentecost and were saved. There was Ananias who healed Saul, who was a devout man. It's very possible Ananias might have been one of these devout men. 
But these were men who took hold of what was good. They served this fallen saint. And the great lamentation mentioned here would have been forbidden by Jewish tradition for an executed criminal. But of course, Stephen was no criminal, at least not in in the eyes of these men. These men did not sit idly by, but publicly protested Stephen's execution. There's two things worth noting here. First, let me ask you this. We see the devotion and, and the grief that comes out at the death of a Stephen. What kind of funeral would you get if you were to die? I'm not talking about what you've prearranged. I'm talking about how would people respond? Even if it was unpopular to grieve, would any of the grieving have to do with your devotion to the Lord? Would there be sadness? Would there be lamentation? Have you and I eternally invested enough in other people's lives that our impact would live past our life? And I'm sure for these devout men, there was some level of risk for them. Sometimes persecution means being guilty by association. It means you're willing to step up and care for someone even if it means you'll be associated with them. Let me give you an example from Scripture. It says this about Joseph of Arimathea. Do you remember Joseph of Arimathea who provided the tomb for Jesus? It says this, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. He was willing to risk his neck to care for one who had paid the ultimate price. Persecution for us may mean showing kindness to those who are persecuted and being guilty by association. Will you be willing to do that? Let me give you a real world application. There may be a time in your life when someone you know has stood up for Jesus Christ and you have not said a word. But you could have. But you knew you'd be guilty by association if you did. They stood for Christ. And you could have said something. But you didn't. Let's be devout. When people stand for Christ in this world, right now, we're not dealing with the the persecution they're dealing with around the world. But you know what? There is the temptation because of the raised eyebrow and the looks we might get and the concerns we have about fitting in. Maybe we're scared to be standing for Christ like we should. Let's be guilty by association. Let's associate with Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's do that. It's what the world needs. There's the satisfaction of the sentence. There's the scattering of the saints. There's the service done to Stephen. And then there's the sin committed by Saul. It says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Not only did Saul dishonor and defile the church, he also set upon himself the consequences that would follow him for the rest of his life. Stephen's persecution would be small in comparison to what would happen to Saul. He insulted the church. He defiled the church. He forcibly removed those who were in the church. One 
One commentator said Saul literally tore the church apart by his actions. And in the process, he not only was persecuting the church, but he was persecuting the Lord. We know that because the Lord came to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? What did he say? Me. So to persecute the church was to persecute the Lord. With regard to Saul's actions, sometimes in life we do sow what we reap. What Saul saw happen to Stephen also happened to him. He lost his life as well. Everything Stephen did and suffered would also happen to Saul. So how do you view, let me ask you, how do you view the people of God? Are you guilty of the sin of Saul? You may not be dragging people out of their homes, but are you guilty of dragging people's names through the mud? Are the people you tolerate the least the ones you should fellowship with the most? You cannot and I cannot claim to love God and hate what He loves. God loves the church. Saul hated the church. John said these words about love. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So do you love your fellow members of the body? Or are you committing the sin of Saul? Next, there is the sowing of the seed. The sowing of the seed. It says in closing in the passage, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. What was the end result of all this? Jesus was preached in areas he'd never been preached before. It was not the act of preaching as much as it was the word being preached that was the power. This is the word for the gospel. And notice who did it. It wasn't the apostles. It wasn't the leaders in the church. It was everybody else who was doing it. People like a Philip and like a Stephen. They shared the good news of Jesus Christ. And it fulfills something that Jesus said in John 12, 32, when He said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto Me. You preach Jesus, and it will change the world in which you live. Here's the key. We are all preaching something. You are preaching something in your life. Something is your message. What we truly believe, we are passionate about. What we are passionate about, we proclaim. And what we proclaim is the gospel we believe. So, what message are you preaching? Let me finish with this thought from the from an illustration in Hungary. Many of you know that 20 or so years ago, the Iron Curtain came down. In Hungary as well. And there's a story of an International Baptist Lay Academy training that was going on at this time. And one of the professors was teaching some of the preachers there how to preach and how to teach the Word of God. And he realized that he had taught so long he'd gone through the break. And he said, I'm so sorry I went through the break. Let's take a break right now. And somebody said to him these words, Professor, don't stop. We've had 40 years of break. We've had 40 years of break. And you know the same thing could be said for the church today. We've been on break from sharing the gospel long enough. It's time for the church and the Christian to return to the mandate of Acts 1.8. Let's put ourselves in a position to meet God. 
Let's patiently embrace the pace of God. Let's be filled with the power of God. Let's proclaim the truth about God. Let's be productive for God. Let's center our lives on Jesus. Let's desire praise from God. Let's penetrate the world with the gospel. And let's be willing to be persecuted for our faith in Christ. And I want to leave you with these final words just in case you were wondering if persecution is a part of the equation. Paul says these words to Timothy at the close of his life. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And listen to what he says in verse 12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. An Acts 1-8 church will be persecuted. An Acts 1-8 Christian will be persecuted. So are you ready to embrace the Acts 1-8 mandate today? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.